1: It's Monday, January thirtieth, and even the silent footage speaks volumes. We start here.
2: What's his name, What's his
1: name, The world reacts to seeing the police beating that killed Tyree Nichols.
3: He is screaming. For his mother.
1: We'll walk you through the moments that will play into the officers' murder charges. Memphis authorities have already disbanded this controversial
2: unit. These units uh, become discriminatory uh, and or overly aggressive in their use of force.
1: Why law enforcement analysts say this goes way beyond a few bad apples. And imagine not just arresting suspects, but bulldozing their homes.
4: It makes their voters and their base happy, even if it's not effective.
1: The controversial policy from Israel after a series of shootings there. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. When you hear about a confrontation with police... It's easy to think that it could never happen to you. To think it would never get to this point if I were there, I would just calmly put up my hands, I'd comply with orders even if they were wrong, and I'd de-escalate the situation. But that doesn't account for a few things. One, it's tough to comply with orders when several are being shouted at you by different people at once. Two, you might freeze up if guns and tasers are being pointed at your face. And three, as much as you think you know what you would do with all your senses, Nothing accounts for that first moment that you get maced or tased or struck. All those previous thoughts you had, they go out the window. And for the first time on Friday evening, that's what I began to understand about the death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. The country is now getting the first look at that disturbing police body camera video. You see Memphis police officers kicking, punching, using a baton on 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. Authorities released a series of body cam videos on Friday night, as well as a surveillance camera up high near the scene. And as you watch the tape, you hear a young man go from confused and compliant to roughed up and terrified, instinctively looking for an escape. It's that escape that sent police on an all-out manhunt, and we saw on video how it ended. Obviously, some really graphic, disturbing audio we're going to hear this morning. We're just going to walk through it once. So, if you don't want to hear it, understandable, maybe skip ahead to the middle of the show. But I do think it's important to hear, just to understand how exactly this situation escalated the way it did. Why it's galvanized protests and vigils, and now reforms in the Memphis PD. With that, let's start the week with ABC's Elwin Lopez. She has been in Memphis, Tennessee all weekend. She was there actually with the Nichols family in the moments after these videos were released. And Elwynn, that's why I say these videos, it was really kind of like a series of tapes that unfolded over like, what, the span of an hour? What do we see?
3: Yeah, they released four videos about an hour long in total. And they show body camera footage as well as street cameras. And what you can see is that it's very aggressive from the get-go. This all happened on January seventh, around eight thirty p.m. in the evening. He was stopped. He was pulled out of his car. Then you can see an officer on the video tackling Nichols to the ground. Get the f- up. Get the f- up. Damn, I didn't do
2: anything.
3: He says, "I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything." And they just right. keep on telling him to to move and to turn one way or another. Put your hands out your back okay,
2: pocket, quick. I'm crazy. Knock your f uh, the f Hey, you guys are really doing a lot right now, bro. Lay down. I'm Please. just trying to go home,
3: Then he takes Please. off an officer running up. Please. And then a second incident occurs, and that's also captured on camera. And you see, then a brutal beating that is just incredibly horrific and appalling. And he is screaming for his mother. Watch out! is? Watch out! You see the 29-year-old. His body has been dragged at that point up against the car, and he slumps over a few times. Hey, sit up, bro. There are two EMTs there. Um, they're just looking at him. It doesn't seem like there's an immediate uh, intervention.
5: Sure. He sure. hear he
3: a sure. You hear some of the officers saying he's on something. He's on something. At another point, you hear an officer saying basically that he didn't have anything in his, in his car. And there is some shock amongst the officers when that is said. He ain't got, you. No, he got, you. He ain't got
5: in the Bro. car?
3: Unless he threw it
5: when on his way running, he yeah, ran he, so he got off. No, no. I
3: don't know. We know that authorities had initially said that he was pulled over uh, due to a claim of reckless driving. The police chief has since said that there is no evidence of reckless driving. We haven't seen evidence of reckless driving.
2: The stop didn't even make sense. Mm -hmm. What they said that alluded to the stop didn't even make sense.
3: And when I talked to Nichols' mother, she told me that he was on his way home. He was taking pictures of the sunset when all of this took place. And you told me that he was really close to his home when he was calling your name. I know you haven't taken a look at the video, but you told me that you felt something happening.
2: Yes, I felt a lot of pain and discomfort in my stomach. And at the time, I didn't realize what it was, but once I found out, then I just said, that was my son's pain that I was feeling.
1: Yeah, and you talked to them within like minutes of this being released, right? Had you seen the video at that point, Elwin?
2: I
3: watched it in the hotel room where the attorney for the family was staying. They talked to us exclusively after that video was released. What do you want people to take away from this?
5: I just wanted them to see why they charged these police officers with murder. Uh, This video illustrates exactly what happened on those streets that night. This uh, also justifies our son showing that he was no threat to them.
3: And now that it was out into the world, they were seeing what the reaction was of other people on social media and some things were brought to their attention that they had not noticed before.
5: In the first five minutes of the release of the video, people started commenting on social media that there was a white police officer there that was engaging with Tyree, uh, but we didn't hear anything about him. And so that raises a lot of questions. uh, Why wasn't he charged with anything?
3: On the video, after Nichols is beaten. You hear some of the officers laughing. You can see one man lighting up a cigarette and smoking. And when I talked to Nichols' mother, she didn't even know. What about listening, because you've seen the video. Yes, ma'am. Listening to the officers laughing mm. after what happens to your son.
2: Mm-hmm. Really? hmm mm. Yeah. Mm. They were Happy. laughing and smoking cigarettes and you know pray for them. Yeah. She
3: just said she's praying for them.
1: And so what was the reaction of the city more broadly then? Because uh, officials had basically acted as if they were preparing for violence without necessarily knowing there would be violence. And and I think a lot of people wondered, like, are you almost going to create a a more tense environment because of that preparation? Or is this become like a self-fulfilling prophecy?
3: Well, listen, the city of Memphis was bracing for the
2: release of these videos. None of this is a calling card for inciting violence or destruction on our community or against our citizens.
3: And what did happen was exactly what Tyree Nichols' mother had called for. Peaceful protests demanding justice and change.
4: So
5: we cannot let the pressure off of their necks until we actually see these officers behind bars.
1: All right. Elwin Lopez, there on the scene in Memphis where she's been tracking this all weekend. Thanks so much for walking us through it.
3: Thank you, Brad. All right, and with that,
1: let's go to ABC News contributor John Cohen. He's a former official of the Department of Homeland Security. Before that, he dealt with gang warfare. He's helped departments shape their strategies towards violent crime in cities across the country. Before that, he was a beat cop. He's worked on SWAT teams. So he's seen every level of law enforcement up close. So, John, with that, can you just describe your initial reaction to
2: this video? Yeah, Brad, I mean, mixed, mixed feelings um, and all of them troubling. Um, I found myself getting angry as I watched the officers being unable to place uh, Mr. Nichols into custody in a safe way. I was horrified when I uh, saw the level of violence, particularly uh, in the third video, when you saw officers kicking him in the head and punching him in the head. Um, I was saddened uh, as I listened to uh, Mr. Nichols calling for help. and, and quite frankly, and this may sound kind of strange, is I was troubled because what I saw in that video was so reminiscent of what I experienced and what I witnessed in Los Angeles in the 80s when, uh, when police operated under a very different mentality, more of a warrior mentality. Uh, and it was so representative of, um, I just thought we had come farther. And what I saw sadly is that we still have real problems within the culture of policing, a profession by the way that I'm proud to have been a part to be a part of, uh, and I continue to be proud of the overwhelming majority of of officers who are out there each day putting their lives on the line
1: and John, one of the sort of big pieces of news from this weekend was that this so-called scorpion unit that Memphis uses is going to be disbanded. I mean, what what is a scorpion unit, and and how does that
2: play into all this in your eyes? So Memphis's scorpion unit was a crime suppression unit that was created in 2021. Going back to 2019, cities across the country began experiencing uh, significant increases in violent crime, and each successive year, the violent crime got worse.
5: I don't know what the cost of a life is, but I know not having resources, makes our city less safe.
1: We will throw more police, more code officers at this challenge.
2: Cities around the country, uh, like Memphis, created um, Scorpion unit-like organizations. These are crime suppression units that uh, include plainclothes officers and and uniform officers. They'll go into high crime communities, uh, and they are... Uh, intended to focus on violent criminals operating in those communities, gang members, auto thieves, people committing robberies, uh, those involved in the drug trade. Uh, And the members of that unit go into these communities and in a very aggressive way, target through self-initiated activity uh, those um, violent elements within the community.
4: It makes no sense to have an elite
2: supposedly elite unit on the streets, and yet we can't figure out who that unit answers to. The problem is that if you don't have the right people working in that unit, or they're not supervised appropriately, or there's no oversight, uh, we've seen these units uh, become discriminatory uh, and or overly aggressive in their use of force. So in, in this video, you see members of Memphis' Scorpion team um, in the first video initiating a traffic stop uh, on an individual that based on their words uh, and their actions, uh, I believe they had made the decision that this was someone who was high on drugs. They viewed Mr. Nichols as a criminal. Uh, It was also very clear based on their agitation uh, and their anger um, that something had happened which had caused them uh, to be scared, had caused them to become angry at Mr. Nichols. And they approached the car uh, in a way that not only was inconsistent with how police officers are trained to deal with those types of situations, but they were almost out of control. I mean, they, they ran up to the car. They're reaching into the car. They're screaming and yelling, uh, using um, profanities. Um, as they, as Mr. Nichols exits the car, they're, they're trying to deploy mace. Um, they're spraying each other in the face. They try to tase him and do so unsuccessfully. And and finally, Mr. Na- Nichols is able to to flee the scene. Um, I mean, to me, that was a shocking level of ineptitude by officers who were working in a special crimes unit.
1: Hey, if part of the issue is like the ratcheting up of intent by these police, like we're going into something dangerous now, can you describe how that works from the first person and how that becomes so dangerous?
2: So what happens If a law enforcement agency doesn't pay close attention to patrol operations and special operations in high crime areas, you begin to potentially see um, an attitude form within officers in those communities where force and other activities is justified. They view themselves as protecting the community, as the only thing standing between the community and violence. They justify, you know, whether it's fudging police reports to make sure someone gets prosecuted uh, or using aggressive um, physical tactics on individuals, they justify it by saying, you know, these aren't people, these are criminals, and if it wasn't for me, you know, then the, the community would be victimized. But they also tend to view everyone in the community as a problem, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, the the gang member uh, or the gang members on the corner or it's just people who are walking to and from work potentially, or even people who are victims of crime. Um, And that's when it gets really dangerous. We've seen this at times with these special operations unit, these crime suppression units, where the officers will be extremely aggressive not only when arresting people, um, but, it, but when they're inter- having interactions with others in the community. And in a sense, they justify it by sending they're sending a message to other criminals that by being by using force, uh, they're not only handling the situation, but then they're going to send a message um, to others not to mess with the police.
1: Wait, yeah, John, does that, is that something that actually gets said out loud by people when you're working as a beat cop? Are there people saying like this guy
2: needs to catch a thumping or something? How does that work? Like when I started my policing career in the 80s, you know, it clearly wasn't a departmental policy, um, but it wasn't uncommon for rookies to be pulled aside by more experienced uh, street officers uh, and provided the, you know, told the rules of the street. And the rules of the street was that if someone runs from the police when you catch them, they need to be beaten. Hmm. If they fought with the police, they needed to go to the hospital. If they killed a police officer, they needed to die wow. during the incident. And that was the rule. And we, it was explained to us that you know, we needed to do that as a deterrent and prevent other officers from potentially getting injured or members of the community. So it was justified. It's never justified. Being inaccurate or dishonest in a police report is not justified. You know, using excessive force is never justified. But here's the problem. These crime suppression units are effective. When a group of law enforcement officers go into a high crime area and they are aggressive and they are, you know, going after the bad guys, uh, you know, you will see a reduction in crime. In fact, earlier, you know, last year, the Scorpion unit was praised by Memphis city officials yeah. for achieving reductions in violent crime in high crime neighborhoods. The problem is there's a cost, right? Well, on the one hand, people may praise, you know, the reductions in crime achieved by, you know, those types of teams. On the other end, you, you in, again unless it's very carefully led and very carefully overseen, you run the risk of discriminatory practices and abusive practices like that, which we saw uh, on the videos over the weekend.
1: All right, John Cohen, thank you so much for the perspective.
2: Thanks, Brad. It's nice talking to you.
1: Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Israel implements a new vision of law and order.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system
3: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times best-selling author, and I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
1: Now, if you want to talk about criminal justice landscapes that seem unsustainable, consider what happened in East Jerusalem over the last several days. So last Thursday, the Israeli military carries out this raid in the disputed West Bank, in which nine Palestinians were killed, including a 60-year-old woman. Like There were civilians in this. The next day, Friday, was Holocaust Remembrance Day. Obviously, huge deal in the Jewish community, synagogues are full. Some of those synagogues are in East Jerusalem, which is considered by much of the world to be the Palestinian capital. And all of a sudden at the synagogue, shots ring out. This mass shooting resulted in seven people dead and more bloodshed was on the way. Now imagine if you lived in a place where this type of violence was distressingly familiar. Now imagine what it would be like where suspects weren't just jailed, but their homes were also bulldozed to the ground. That is becoming a reality right now. ABC's Jordana Miller is based in Jerusalem. That's where she is now. Jordana, first off, what do we know about, you know, this horrific shooting and this sort of series of violent events?
4: Brad, such a tragic Sabbath the day of rest, uh, a day where families go to synagogue, they come home, they have dinner together, not to mention that it was Friday, International Holocaust Memorial Day, and uh, a Palestinian 21-year-old from East Jerusalem with, by the way, no criminal record, no ties to any militant groups, uh, essentially uh, went to a synagogue in East Jerusalem and hung out there, and then started to shoot uh, worshippers as they came out of the service. He ended up killing seven civilians. Uh, Sadly, uh, you know, a number of them uh, came out to see what was happening and try to help, and they were shot and killed, uh, including a 14-year-old boy. Uh, Now, we haven't seen a kind of uh, shooting massacre like this really in over... 10 years. Uh, So I can tell you that, you know, people, there was not only a sense of grief, but real shock. And it didn't end there because 15 hours later, uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, there was a a father and a son walking to synagogue, likely in the morning, and they were shot at by a 13 year old Palestinian boy, a young teenager. Um, They were not killed. Uh, They were seriously injured. Uh, One, uh, the father's now been released from the hospital. But, you know, it's being uh, essentially dubbed a black Sabbath here, back-to-back attacks that killed seven Israelis and, you know, injured uh, seriously a few others.
1: Well, and then policies also then kind of ramp this up a notch, right? Because recently, Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, took the reins again as leader of Israel. He's considered as conservative as ever. In fact, he's more aligned now with even harder right Jewish leaders. So what has the response to these Palestinian shootings been in this new Netanyahu era?
4: Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu taking a very hard line. First of all, uh, they have sealed The home of one of the attackers, the 21-year-old, who fired on the worshipers outside of the synagogue. Literally, we saw images of their welding and closing the door of of this attacker's uh, family's home. It will be demolished, uh, really, within days.
5: Uh, The police will not allow terror organizations to take advantage of children and youth.
4: Even though the the young 13-year-old Palestinian attacker who opened fire on the Sabbath on Saturday morning, even though his victims did not die, the cabinet still approved sealing his home in East Jerusalem, his family's home, and that will also be demolished. The Israel
5: police are going to act accordingly, strong with determination and professionalism.
1: Wait, so, th- Jordana, that's a thing where, like, if you are, the f- I'm, I'm just thinking about people who aren't even the shooters here. Like, if, you're, if, you, if you live with someone who ends up being a suspect or a, a shooter, you can just have your home boarded up and then bulldozed eventually?
4: Right, well, that's a great point. I mean, this is a really controversial policy. Some in these really defense establishments say, hey, it will build deterrence because if an attacker knows that their parents, who they live with, will suddenly lose their home because it'll be demolished, maybe they won't go out and carry out an attack. The problem, Brad, is that the Israeli government studied uh, home demolitions, and after a decade, they found that they actually weren't that effective, and they weren't really a deterrent. But we see often here in Israel the far-right leaders that Netanyahu now is much more closely aligned with. You know, They're strong proponents of this because it makes their voters and their base happy, even if it's not effective. So, these two attackers, their families are going to lose their homes. In addition, Netanyahu is proposing other measures. Uh, They want to pass a law that will revoke the residency of the families of Palestinian attackers. That means, essentially, if you live in East Jerusalem and a cousin or a son carries out an attack, You will no longer have the right to live in in East Jerusalem. You'll be essentially expelled either to the West Bank, to Gaza, to another country. Uh, And Netanyahu now wants to revoke some national uh, insurance health rights for family members. Again, will this bring deterrence? Even the most extreme measures, as we discussed, demolishing homes didn't do it. So I'm not sure this is going to do it either.
1: Yeah, and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken actually in Israel today, so we'll see what comes of those meetings. Jordana Miller in Jerusalem, thank you. Thanks, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, the paint color of your car doesn't actually affect your insurance, but your key might. One last thing is next.
2: Married moms in the suburbs, they've been called soccer moms, they've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk
0: is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I
2: love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms.
0: In the
5: 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed
1: wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. There are lots of reasons your car insurance might go up or down. Some of it's you, your driving history, your location, your gone-in-60 seconds driving habits.
0: Oh, you wanna get crazy with me?
1: Other factors may include the car itself. If it's got difficult to replace parts, it's more expensive to repair. Some cars always seem to result in more insurance claims, especially the ones that are attractive to thieves, like the fancy sports cars. I just saw 50 cars for you in one night. All right, I'm a little tired, a little wired, and I think I deserve a little appreciation. Well, recently, a couple of major insurance companies declared they will stop insuring some much cheaper cars. I'm talking Kias and Hyundais. There are videos on TikTok and YouTube that will show you basically how to break into Hyundai and Kia vehicles. It's ABC's Mike Dubusky who covers autos and tech, and he says it's become common knowledge that it's really easy to steal some of these slightly older Kias and Hyundais that were made before 2019. After all, Hyundai has a big stake in Kia, so a lot of their parts are made at the same factories. So it all comes back to this issue of a technology called an engine immobilizer. And what an engine immobilizer does is it basically is a redundancy system to make sure that your car doesn't get stolen in kind of the traditional way. Um, It consists of two computer chips, one's in your key fob and one's in the car, and basically when you put your key into the ignition and turn it, the little chip in your key talks to the chip in your car and says, hey, I'm your key, let's get going. Apparently in versions with push button starts, the system works just like it's intended, but in the cheaper models, thieves have learned how to get your car to think that's your key in the ignition. (laughs) At this point, there are millions of people watching break-in tutorials from young men online who call themselves Kia boys. I mean, if you had a five-year-old maybe uh, that, you know, smart enough, you know, with a screwdriver, and you said, hey, just
0: pry pry this out, it could probably get pried out by five years. It's that simple.
1: State Farm told us these basic models, the trim levels for Hyundai and Kia, will no longer get new policies in certain states where these car thefts are exploding. Progressive says it's doing the same thing because the theft rates have tripled in some areas. Existing insurance policies will still be honored. In a statement, Hyundai said it quote, regrets this decision by insurers, end quote, and they expect this move will be temporary. They also say higher quality security has been standard issue for a few years now, and that it's distributing wheel locks to affected owners or Across the country, Mike says if the car makers sound worried, that's because they are. This is coming at exactly the wrong moment for Hyundai and Kia, right? Like they are on a hot streak, and like this is a headline that they do not want to hit right now. Popular cars often become popular targets. That's usually fine for sales. Being able to find insurance isn't usually the first thing your customer is going to think of. But if insurers are willing to cover that red Corvette that belongs to your lead-footed uncle and not your 2016 Sportage, well, that sets off new types of alarms. One of the things I can't get over is in in the steps to breaking into this car, one thing involves smashing the rear window because apparently the alarm doesn't get triggered by that. The alarm system's like, oh, it's not the driver's side. We must be cool. Hey, we will be covering all the fallout in Memphis throughout the day. Head to abcnews.com or the ABC News app for up-to-the-minute info there. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Married moms in the suburbs, they've been called soccer moms, they've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She
0: calls herself a hockey
1: mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying
5: to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.